just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mail. Here's Mike. Hello, welcome to the latest episode of Money Management. My name is Mike Mail. We're all set for another hour of financial news, a recap on what's going on in the economy, and most important, how it all affects you. We'll be discussing uh, subjects that popped up on our radar this week, but should you have a question, a comment on the show, or a topic you'd like us to address, please drop us a line at uh, info at opus111group.com. That's info at opus, O-P-U-S, 111group.com, and we'll be happy to uh, respond. Now, I want to start, uh, as is traditional, with the, um, how would I say, data dump, and uh, give us a, a look at where things ended up for the week. It wasn't a great week for the markets, but that's how it goes sometimes. So right now, the Dow ended Friday at 30,822. The S&P closed the week at 3,873. The NASDAQ ended at 11,448. Russell 2000 closed at 1797. Gold settled at $16.83 an ounce, silver at $19.36 an ounce. An interesting dichotomy here, gold's going down and silver is going up. I know why gold's going down, but I have no idea why silver's going up. But in any case, uh, the crude price uh, Friday was $85.11 a barrel. Ten-year treasury was bid at 3.45% and soft white wheat quoted at $9.46 a bushel. Now, some good news before we get into the data for uh, the market in general. About 70 million people, better known as our listening audience, well, give or take a few. Uh, anyway, you know, retirees, disabled folks, others who rely on Social Security. According to uh, Mary Johnson, policy analyst at the Senior Citizen League, we'll be receiving an 8.7% cost of living adjustment uh, starting in January. Now, that would be the largest increase since 1982. Uh, what that works out to is the average retiree uh, less gets a, this year a monthly check around 1656 That would give you an extra $144 a month, bringing a total payment up to $1,800. Now, the catch-22 is that that could kick some folks into a higher tax bracket. Um, and so if, you're an, uh, if you are an individual filing taxes and your income is between 25000 and 34000 you may have to pay income tax on up to 55, 0% of these benefits. And that percentage goes up to 85% if your income is more than $34,000. For uh, couples filing jointly with incomes between 32000 and 44000 you may have to pay tax on up to 50% of your benefits and up to 85% if your income is more than 44000 Not exactly adjusted for reality, but that's, that's the rules. Now, we won't know officially until October 13th when the September Consumer Price Index numbers come out what the actual increase will be, but at least you got a reference point. Now, yesterday, FedEx got blown right out of the water. They're, they dropped 21%, uh, which I think was about 15% um, overdone, but that's just me. In any case, the company said that their quarterly ev revenue will be w below expectations. They're closing offices around the world and parking airplanes because 
their volume of packages moving around the world is dropping. And they said their biggest weakness is in Asia, which I believe is code for China. But nonetheless, um, it's seen as a bellwether for the global economy. And that was why the market was off uh, on Friday. And as uh, you may have heard, the average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage is up to 6.02%. That's up from 5.89 last week. A year ago, it was 2.86%. So um, making it a little tougher for folks in, uh, trying to buy a house. Now, the big news this coming up week, the Fed meets on Tuesday and Wednesday. And about 11 our time on Wednesday, Mr. Powell will be holding forth and talking about how much they're moving it, what their plans are going forward, and so on. Um, we'll get the Home Builders Index Monday, and then Tuesday, housing starts, and uh, also existing home sales next week. So we'll get a much more clear view of the real estate market uh, at that time. Now, I want to talk about some of these economic things that came up this past week. You know, it seems like almost everyone is bearish due to some combination of uh, inflation issues, rising interest rates, the Fed trying to slow demand, stocks down, housing rolling over. But the economic data doesn't seem to be cooperating with our friends in the bearish media. Uh, for example, U.S. jobless claims fell for a fourth consecutive week to a three-month low, and the national unemployment rate is just 3.7%. In the 80s, we were told that the unemployment rate in a country would never get below 5 That's just how the economy was. Oops. So, but as uh, the second quarter earnings season is wrapping up, we're not seeing much drop in uh, corporate America. The S&P earnings actually grew for the second quarter by 6.3%. 75% of the companies beat bottom line expectations. So this looks nothing like a recession because in a recession, you have an average decline in earnings of 21%. So we're a long way from that, I hope. And uh, interestingly, uh, yesterday we learned that consumer sentiment hit its highest point in five months in September. I think the drop in gas prices is probably behind that. Now, producer price index, that's uh, inflation at the manufacturing level, dropped uh, just a tenth of a percent. That was in line with expectations. So there's plenty of guessing about what the Fed's going to do and what it means for the economy moving forward because the inflation, again, is still well above their target. Uh, you know, to, to give you an idea how much interest rates have affected things, uh, one year ago, the one-year U.S. Treasury uh, bill was 0.07%. Today, it's, uh, <laughs> well, almost 4%. Uh, and the two-year uh, note was seen as a proxy for Fed policy is also close to 4%. So... You know, the actual Fed meeting will probably be anticlimactic. Everybody on Wall Street is anticipating them to raise rates by um, three-quarters of 1% or 75 basis points. And that'll bring their Fed funds rate to three to three and a quarter. Um, we'll see. I just, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it works out. Um, that Tuesday report, uh, it's Tuesday market where we're down 1,200 or whatever it was on the Dow uh, and that's because the traders got blindsided. They were anticipating a drop in inflation that came in hotter than expected, and they all just were running for the exit. So it was uh, a bit of an overdone knee-jerk, but that's pretty much uh, how traders operate. Now, uh, also, uh, regarding those interest rates, two years ago, remember I was mentioning about uh, the mortgage rate now at 602 
two years ago, the mortgage rate was 2.87. The average home price, $405,000. Average new home price today, $547,000. So the $28,000 increase in required down payment, 20% down, that's a 96% increase in your monthly payment. And that doesn't include taxes, insurance, utilities, repairs, all that other stuff. So uh, that is likely going to put the brakes on the uh, housing market to a great extent and also indirectly help slow down inflation. You know, the U.S. economy uh, continues to be driven by the consumer, and they're still spending at record numbers. Retail sales uh, in the most recent period rose again. Uh, and But retail sales are not adjusted for inflation. The latest reading reflects a combination of consumer demand and higher prices. Retail spending uh, mostly encompasses spending on things like furniture, cars, trucks, groceries, and they remain pretty much in place for the last so long. Now, <laughs> energy prices fell 5% for the month, uh, led by a 10% drop in gasoline. However, those were offset by increases elsewhere. Diesel and natural gas prices continued high. Diesel engines power about 75% of U.S. farm equipment, transport 90% of farm products, according to the Diesel Technology Forum. And diesel prices are up 53%. So you've got, because trucks and heavy equipment are, well, necessary to get food from the ground to the stores, um, there's a big reason why you're seeing food inflation not just because of supply and demand. Uh, and they're up, food prices are up for the eighth month in a row, simply, not simply because of that, but great in great deal uh, resolve, revolving around that. Right now, when I go back to this comment from Jason Zweig in the journal about the money illusion, you know, the recent price of three sixty nine a gallon, uh, and that's national um, for gasoline, is near an all-time high relative to nominal prices. Again, nominal is what you see on the signs. You see them every day in the various gas stations. They're all in your face. That's why you always know what gas is. And so, you know, that's, so that's why people are sensitive to it. You know, the real prices, which is adjusted for inflation, you really don't think about it. I mean, <laughs> let's see, that pre- that's three sixty nine, but for inflation, it's really this much. No. In real terms, the average national price of three sixty nine is nowhere near the record highs of 550 in 2008 and well below the peak we saw in 1980 and 82. Now, here's something that may be a little hard to get your head around, but it is the truth. After factoring in inflation, gas is cheaper today than it was more than 40 years ago and for much of the 2000 and 2010s as well. See, that's what that's the money illusion he was referring to. Thinking about the real prices is kind of hard, while the nominal prices are what sticks with us. And, of course, the politicians, and dare I say, on both sides of the aisle, exploit, exploit this illusion to score points on whatever it is they're blathering with us about. Now, speaking of illusions, uh, let, let's talk about this gold stuff. You know, inflation has hit successive 40-year highs, finishing in June at 9.1%, you know, currently 8.3%, bond market worse since the 1840s, people are worried about recession, and if there ever was a consensus of conventional thinking that many have said should favor gold, this environment sure is it. Now, the so-called safe haven of gold is supposed to provide its owners protection from rising prices, falling stocks, recession, so on and so on and so on. 
And with all of this, gold still can't rally. You know, commentary in the financial media and, <clears throat> excuse me, people promoting gold in the commercials, uh, Pat Boone, you know who you are, and the safe place to be touting gold and commodities as inflation hedges, saying or suggesting it was a surefire in investment for these times. Well, in investing, the, it's most often a bad idea to follow the herd. The so-called consensus or conventional wisdom, which usually isn't wisdom, that is, and make decisions based on widely known information. By the time all the articles about how to invest in these things come in, that's usually too late. You know, March 8th has proven to be, this year, has proven to be the gold's high water mark. It was at 2051. Uh, and from then through the rest of this year, it's fallen over 18%. Not exactly an inflation edge, is it? That's more than double the global stocks drop of eighteen point of eight point four percent. Commodities in general have moved down, and again, this helps demonstrate there isn't really anything unique about gold. Not magic; it's just a commodity. It's a rock. And if you go back to nineteen eighty, when a time of hyperinflation, I was there for it. I can attest to this. Gold hit $800 an ounce. That's not adjusted for inflation. Adjusted for inflation would be around $2,500. And at that time, the Dow was at 800 So if you adjust for inflation that time, since that time, gold has never, ever hit that high level again, whereas the Dow, of course, has done much better. Now, gold is more volatile than stocks. It pays no dividends or interest. It has no inherent value because it doesn't produce anything. And its long-term returns are much lower than stocks. Warren Buffett, you may have heard of him. He has this to say about gold. He said, and I'm quoting, you could take all the gold that's ever been mined. I'm talking about Egyptians and all those folks way back then. And it would fill a cube. Imagine a big ice cube, 67 feet in each direction. Now, that's a pretty big cube. For what it's worth, though, at current prices, you could buy not some, but all, all of the farmland in the U.S. Plus, you could buy 10 Exxon Mobiles, the entire companies, and still have a trillion dollars for lunch money. Or you could have a big cube of metal, you know, so which one do you want? That's, I don't know, that seems pretty obvious to me, but then again, I'm a slow study, so who knows. So... Contrary to what you're hearing in the financial press, which loves to sensationalize things, gosh knows, there's evidence that uh, inflation pressures are actually, well, cooling a bit. Again, as I've said, non-energy commodity prices are soft. Oil down over 25% in the last four months. Dollar very strong. Housing prices, new mortgage apps are falling because rates have doubled so far this year. And as we just said, rents are still on the rise, but they're a lagging indicator. In other words, rents rise about a year after house prices rise, so they begin to likely stabilize about six to nine months from now. So, above all, please understand that this recent inflation flare-up was not caused by a Fed policy error. It was caused by the federal government's attempt to make up for their ill-advised lockdowns with massive deficit uh, finance finance uh, transfer payments that have inflated our money supply. Well, the good news is that mistake ended about a year ago, and the M2 money supply, which is pretty much all the money that's out floating around in different kinds of accounts, uh, has since decelerated quite significantly. So the fundamental reason for our current inflation has long since begun to fade away. Now, I believe that inflation pressures have peaked. 
I'd also believe that inflation could remain uncomfortably high, probably through year-end, because all inflation is in the pipeline. It takes a while to work its way through the economy. What this means is that the Fed shouldn't have to tighten much more than it already has. The 75 basis point hike, three-quarters of 1%, uh, likely at next year's Fed meeting, might be enough. Now, and please also remember this. From a historical perspective, all recessions, all recessions in the past 50 years or so have been preceded by very high real interest rates, which were the direct result of Fed tightening actions. Now, very high real yields accompanied by what they call an inverted yield curve, where the short end, their the, the near-term uh, fixed income instruments are yielding more than longer-term ones. Well, those are the basic ingredients for a recession. Today, we only have one of those ingredients, which is the inverted real yield curve. So that's a big reason why I'm pretty reluctant to say that our economy is in a recession. Now, in that regard, let me uh, segue over to economic news. You know, it's always easy to come up with a list of things that can go wrong and then a list of things that can go right. It's, and that seems especially true today. It seems like everybody is bearish due to a combination of uh, concerns, quote-unquote, about inflation, rising rates, the Fed trying to slow demand, housing rollover. But the economic data doesn't seem to be cooperating with our friends in the bearish financial media. Thursday, a couple days ago, uh, U.S. jobless claims fell for the fourth consecutive week to a three-month low. National unemployment rate is just 3.7%. In the 80s, we were told that the uh, unemployment rate could never get below 5. That's just where it is. And as we all know, we can operate very nicely at a much lower unemployment rate. But here, as we're winding up the second quarter earnings season, there really isn't much deterioration in the, the corporate America. S&P 500 earnings actually grew for the second quarter by a little over 6%. 75% of the companies beat their bottom line expectation. Now, uh, in a recession, the average decline in earnings is around 21.3%. So we're looking at a 27% difference to the good. Uh, no, that doesn't sing inflation to me. And just yesterday, a consumer sentiment survey came in highest point in five months in September. The decline in gas prices apparently did help a little bit. So, you know, let's look to ex see what uh, Mr. Powell and his buddies uh, might have to say next week. Uh, the actual Fed meeting is probably going to be anticlimactic. Everybody's prepared for that uh, three quarters of a percent jump in rates. That would bring the target rate to uh, three to three and a quarter percent. Um, you know, a, a glowing belief that, uh, again, inflation had peaked. And I think we'll soon see, see some proof that inflation has been moderating. Well, it hasn't happened yet, gosh knows, as we saw why the market jumped into a major hissy fit on Tuesday. But the, the core inflation rate again in August was double what we had anticipated. In terms of just info, you know, bonds have had a tough year. They're on a pace for their worst year in history. That's pretty tough. Down 11% year to date. And as we just discussed, gold is no, no good thing. Interesting though, silver is up and gold is down. Don't know why. I'm sure we'll, all will be revealed. But in any case, um, and we've had a strong dollar, very strong dollar. It's the only safe haven uh, uh, around the world. And so people are throwing, from around the world, are throwing money at it 
and that keeps it up and strong. Now, until the money starts to leave the dollar, stocks and cryptocurrencies are going to have a hard time getting along. Uh, so, you know, just understand that's kind of the reality. So, how do you invest now? Um, you know, uh, the answer is to make sure you have a diversified portfolio of high-quality stocks. I say stocks on purpose because if you're investing for the long term, uh, you can look up any data you want from any source you want, and you say that the best overall investment is, again, a diversified portfolio of high-quality stocks. Not bonds, not CDs, not real estate. It isn't to say you don't have some of all that. That's called diversification. But the majority of it, in my opinion, and I think the record is clear on that, is to be in uh, high-quality stocks. Now, the ability to pass rising costs on to consumers and customers without losing business, that's known as pricing power. And it's uh, that's what companies must have to proper, excuse me, prosper among in situations like this. For instance, uh, Altria used to be called Philip Morris. The smokers don't resist paying more over time for it because it's an addiction, right? And so tobacco, movies, uh, alcohol, sugar, those all do well in situations like this. Um, but instead of chasing the latest fad, just stay with diversification, stay with your strategy, which hopefully includes those things, and go forward from there. Now, good sectors. Please understand, I cannot, by law, sit here and tell you what stocks I think are good. Why? Because I'm a registered representative of the New York Stock Exchange, and because of that, um, Big Brother says, well, you don't know who all's out there, and you can't just make blanket statements because they may not apply to everybody, and certainly they wouldn't. But you can be assured that the vast majority of the people who you see on the TV, etc., are not restricted by these things, so they can say whatever comes into their head and not have to worry about getting one of those striped suntans. So, going back to the sectors, these are ones that have historically proven good in inflationary periods. Real estate, typically through real estate investment trusts, uh, energy, financial companies, commodities, healthcare, and well, the sector called consumer staples, uh, like Procter & Gamble, Costco, those kinds of companies. They have typically done well. And you can look up Google Consumer Staples. You'll see a lot of examples of what might fit in there, as well as financials, energy, and so on. Now, another thing that I think is worth strongly considering, especially for longer term, is dividends. You know, it can provide income. And, and so can interest payments from bonds. Some more volatile sectors like Infotech, uh, you know, you know uh, Amazon and Google and those kids, uh, they're not common dividend payers, while the more defensive, stable, lower growth sectors like the utility area and real estate are. And in bear markets, it has been shown that defensive sectors tend to outperform. But as you may be aware, there's a difference in how dividends and the interests are taxed. Qualified dividends are taxed at 15% for many taxpayers, up to 238 for the high-earning high folks. In contrast, all bond yields, not municipal because those are free from federal income tax, but all bond yields are taxed as ordinary income. As a result, the top rate of 37% on ordinary income is significantly higher than the capital gains rate on dividends. 
and so that gives dividends all by themselves a leg up on bond treatments for taxable accounts. And by the way, a qualified dividend, that's one that uh, falls under capital gains tax rates. Um, they are uh, typically those paid out from most common or preferred stocks, and so that's pretty good. Uh, now, some dividends, however, are automatically exempt from consideration. Those include dividends paid by real estate investment trusts, master limited partnerships, uh, those dividends paid on ESOPs, employee stock options, and tax-exempt companies. Dividends paid from money market accounts, uh, such as deposits and savings banks, credit unions, other financial institutions, do not qualify and are reported as interest income. And also special one-time dividends, also unqualified. Now, you'll get a, your advisor's firm will send you a breakout of the qualified ordinary dividends paid to you uh, and reported on the IRS 1099 div. So you get that every year. You don't have to worry about doing the homework on the dang thing. Now, also, rising rates make, rising interest rates, make future profits like those promised by the big growth companies, i.e. the high techs of late, much less attractive. Higher rates are meant to fight inflation by decreasing economic activity. That could hurt earnings growth and why the jump in the 10-year has hit the market so hard. Now, also, the dollar continues to trade very strongly in the currency markets. The strong dollar and weak commodity markets are classic symbols of symptoms, excuse me, of tight money. Commodities are widely considered to be the canaries in the inflation coal mine and so when the Fed is tight, commodities almost always suffer. A rising dollar almost always coincides with falling commodity prices, which again is good for uh, inflation rates, as in going lower. And commodities generally have already broken to the downside after that big inflationary run-up earlier this year. The Fed is already pretty tight, probably has broken the back of inflation. Plus, with the dollar so strong, it's hard to see how the general price level can continue to rise at the rapid pace as inflation, by definition, is a loss of a currency's purchasing power. That's not just not happening in the uh, commodity markets. Now, Sam Stovall, my buddy from CFRA, says he expects the June market lows will be holding in spite of Tuesday's hot inflation report. He, Sam says that despite the possibility of additional near-term decline in prices, that he thinks his firm thinks that uh, the June low will hold. Now, a strong dollar crimps income that companies earn abroad, since money brought in in, in the form of weaker foreign currencies is con therefore converted into fewer dollars. So that's direct directly related to your international exposure, which could be greater than you think. Of all the S&P companies, about 30% of those folks are have overseas business, and that's where uh, their revenues come from. Uh, so that's quite a bit. So if you own a collection of international stocks, and generally you do own those through mutual funds or ETFs or what have you, uh, you know, y your drag on performance is noticeable. And again, uh, Jason Zweig had another comment. He said, international currencies and stocks are simultaneously depressed if the dollar ultimately declines from recent record highs. And that would if that happens, give a double boost to the re to returns on overseas stock. Who knows when that'll happen, but be aware. You know, with pessimism everywhere, yeah, and undeserved in my not-so-humble opinion, it wouldn't take 
many positive surprises to overturn the uh, obvious and make global diversification a good idea again. You know, a lot of people I hear, you know, they're concerned about the country and the economy and these kinds of things. Um, well, let, let me let me let me uh, throw a little oh by the way at you. You know, we have an abundance of natural natural advantages over the rest of the world, which give us uh, uh, help support our the U.S. dollar in its global re, global reserve currency status. There aren't any natural heirs to the quote unquote throne. In the 80s, you may remember, Japanese, Japan was going to overtake us. That didn't happen. And now China is nipping at our heels. But if you look at their demographics, with their, uh, it's not happy. Yeah, they're, they're, they're having some significant population challenges. Um, and economic growth is a function of population growth and productivity. Um, and they're coming up behind the curve a little bit. We're talking about some of the natural advantages we have in the global marketplace. I want to just uh, add a few more. You know, the U.S. dominates consumer technology, Internet, smartphone, two of the biggest innovations of the last 50 years, and our companies dominate these technologies. And, you know, and to include Tesla, who has forced the automobile industry to change its entire business model going forward. We've got energy independence. Europe, as you probably are well aware, is in the throes of one of the worst energy crises, self-induced it would appear, they've ever faced. Uh, European citizens are facing extraordinarily high energy bills, and there aren't any easy solutions. You know, we're not immune, obviously, to rising energy prices, but we're in much better shape than uh, those folks across the pond. We've got plenty of oil, natural gas, and coal. You know, obviously no one likes higher prices, but we're in way better shape than the rest of the developed world when it comes to energy. And, excuse me, uh, we have the biggest, most dynamic economy in the world. We're not dependent on any one single industry or commodity like many other developed and even especially emerging economies are. And we have the biggest, most diverse stock market in the world. You know, the the country's only been around for a few hundred years now, but our economic dominance only began after World War II, so we're talking, you know, round number 70 years. And and being bullish on us, on the U.S., doesn't mean being bearish on the rest of the world. Quite the contrary. Technology has leveled the playing field and offers folks in other countries a lot more opportunities than they've ever had in the past. I'm a global bull. Well, I'm, I'm a bull long-term, short-term, whatever kind of term, because that's how things work out historically. But um, I think most of the folks in the other countries are going to want to wake up and improve their lots in life as well, wouldn't you agree? Now, think longer term. You know, both now and as data and markets move around from here, nothing moves in a straight line, whether it's inflation data or stock market you know, even a new stock market low is possible from here if sentiment stays bad enough for long enough because I think sentiment is driving the market more so than um, the hard numbers. But new bull markets usually begin when folks think that any light at the end of the tunnel must be an oncoming train. Well, that mentality is certainly here in spades today. This suggests a recovery, that is to say a new bull market, is probably close by if not already underway. Yeah, you heard it first. 
So many investors are concerned about events that have maybe a 2% chance of ever happening, while ignoring the fact that the stock market is up something like 75% of all years. So as a baseball analogy, if, if you hit 750, I'd say you'd be able to make a little bit of money in that game, would you? Well, that's how it is in our game. You know, 75% of the time you're up. People seem to want to hedge against inflation, deflation, stagflation, any kind of inflation, bear markets, volatility, government policies, you pick it. And yeah, you have to build various downside risks into your expectations, but you can't hedge out every risk imaginable. You're going to have <laughs> with no upside. You know, defaulting to the assumption that stocks go up most of the time, but sometimes they go down, may not stimulate your brain a great deal, but it's a strategy that will win you most of the time. Yeah, And there's nothing wrong paying attention to the bad stuff some of the time. Just don't be trading off that stuff. You know, in most cases, the good outweighs the bad, whether it's where you live or investing in the markets. Now, secular bull markets can last multiple years. A cyclical market, whether it's a bull or bear, can occur within a secular market. And I believe that's where we are now. And these cyclical bear markets typically last about 13 months. And according to the uh, math, uh, we're about in month nine. So we're getting close to the end, likely. You know, there's very little evidence to suggest that our economy is in distress. Liquidity is abundant. In other words, cash is available, the opposite of what you'd expect to see if monetary policy was actually tight instead of uh, the Fed being effectively less loose. The outlook for corporate profits remains healthy. Job growth remains solid. And again, national unemployment only 3.7%. In any event, this debate over whether the economy is in a recession, I think it hardly matters. If inflation is cooling, Fed has no reason to really raise rates extensively now. That's my opinion. And if the bond market is right, and it usually is, then the Fed's likely to raise rates uh, to a peak of about maybe three and a quarter over the next six months or no or so. And that is not the stuff from which recessions come. You know, some of the previously fast-growing industries over the last couple of years are slowing as the reopening-related boom fades, and other areas face ongoing headwinds. But I think this is a great phrase, the pessimism of disbelief. The pessimism of disbelief's prevalence is a strong sign that stocks have already digested these obstacles and fears of worse to come. It is, as they say, in the market. It suggests it shouldn't take much for uh, reality to deliver this sort of positive surprise that helps fuel a recovery. Understanding the difference between uptrends and downtrends can be helpful in your market situational awareness. Uptrends are slow and methodical. You don't really notice them. They they don't come in gains, that is, don't come in big chunks, but kind of a stair step. And so you get almost lulled to sleep because there seem to be much going on. On the other hand, downtrends, <laughs> say, can you say Tuesday, uh, are erratic. Returns are lumpy as both gains and losses take the elevator up and down. Downtrends pave the way for a broader set of outcomes. Not always in a good way as panic is uh, <clears throat> not a helpful emotion when making investment decisions. As you may have heard, the biggest down days and the biggest up days tend to take place during these market downturns. Now, John Stolfus, uh, analyst from Oppenheimer, says, and I'm quoting, based on what the jobs numbers showed us this week and what the consumer price index and producer price index showed us this week, this may overall work pretty good for earnings. 
The fundamentals are indeed getting better, even as many challenges remain in the landscape. <clears throat> Excuse me. And J.P. Morgan Chase, led by Marco Kalanovich, says uh, investors should modestly trim stockholders and shift the money to commodities after stocks outpaced assets amid receding recession fears. Unquote. Uh, he said uh, they go on to say better than feared. Uh, economic data are causing stock and credit markets to price out recession risk. With commod- And this is, again, J.P. Morgan Chase. With commodities lagging other risky assets, we shift some of our risk allocation from stock to commodities. So, you know, here, here, here's another thought. Um, if you had been, you know, in 20 years ago, uh, you say, gee, you know, I'm not, or like right now, you say, should I put money in the market? You know, there's the adage that says the best time to invest is when you have the money. And I believe, firmly believe that's accurate. But you say, well, gee, you know, what about this and what about that? And, you know, you talk yourself into these worries. Well, going back 20 years, that's not forever. Let's go, say to 2002, if you had invested $100 um, in uh, uh, your average savings account because you were concerned and, you know, you didn't want to lose money, quote-unquote, and that kind of stuff. Well, okay, the average savings account earns a tenth of 1% annually. Had you deposited $100 into a savings account in 2002, you would have had $102.20 20 years later. With you take inflation into account... <laughs> you would have negative buying power. You wouldn't be able to buy as much as you did in 2000, even after you took it out of the dang bank. On the other hand, had you parked that same $100 in the S&P 500, that would be four ninety six sixty. So even when adjusted for inflation over that time, the investment still has a 5.5% more buying power per year than funds held in cash. Now, you know, you can't put all your money in stocks. That's too risky. You got to have some cash reserve. But for long-term investing, there is no better way for you to do that. So please keep that in mind for the future. Do not talk yourself out of this. Well, that's going to do it for this week's edition of Money Management, powered by the Opus 111 Group. My name is Mike Mayo. I'd love to hear from you if you have a topic, a question, or a comment, and so we can keep you informed of uh, what's going on. Uh, email me. I promise I'll respond either directly or on the show. And you just email us at info at opus111group.com. That's info at opus, O-P-U-S, 111group.com. I really thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, so put it on your calendar. Thank you very much. Join us again next Saturday morning at this same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com.